0: Good morning. I just want to say good morning to you all and uh, appreciate the opportunity of serving in your midst. And I want to say good morning as well to those of you at Castleton and grateful for you as well and just what the Lord is doing in all your lives. So as we begin, we're in the, we're in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 6. And uh, what I want to do with this, there's 71 verses and uh so we're not going into great detail into all of those verses but what i'd like to do is i'd I'd like to look at the four scenes the four um fundamental scenes of this chapter and i want us to look at it with two guidelines one or guidepost if you will is is thinking through what does jesus reveal about himself and then also what are the people's response to jesus so we're looking at The revelation and the response. The revelation of Christ and the response of the people. And then from there, I want us to then look at five principles that we glean uh, from just how did Jesus interact with such a ministry circumstance. And so that's what we want to look at. For me, when I came to Christ, I was uh, in high school and I uh, basically came to the church because I was attracted to a particular girl. And that's why... I went to church. There was no other reason than that. Uh, I didn't really know who Jesus was. I didn't know uh, the role of the church, the purpose of the church, why the church even existed. Had never gone to church, and so when I went to church and and got involved and uh, in about to meet a few more of the people, I began to be attracted just to the crowd. I was attracted to the crowd of young people and to the events that were taking place, and, and, and that's what attracted me there. And I was very much similar to the crowd that's described in John 6. They were really just attracted to Jesus because he was doing a lot of really cool things in their mind's eye, and, and he was doing things that were spe- spectacular and amazing. And, and not only that, but a lot of them were just showing up because that's where everybody else was. I remember one time when I, uh, in, a, in a former life, I, I used to serve coffee, and I uh, uh, used to have a coffee cart in Southern California, and, and uh, I remember we had an event, uh, and at this event, we just had one person after another, after another, after another, and about two to three hours of, of just, just one drink after another, we get to the very last customer, we asked him what he wanted, and he simply said, I don't know, what is this? And we just looked at him a little perplexed and wondered, well, why were you in line? He said, well, I just saw everybody else. And I was just there. I mean, that's what I was attracted to. And and you have a crowd of people in John 6, for the most part, are just there because other people are there. And they're not really there because of who Jesus is. And so John 6 is a robust section in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. Because in these 71 verses, we have the feeding of the 5,000 plus, we have Jesus walking on the water, we have Jesus' statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and we have Peter's incredible statement of faith in Jesus. But what is a resounding theme is the response of the people to what Jesus has revealed about himself by way of signs and proclamation. This is how we look at this chapter together. We're going to look again at the revelation of Jesus, the people's response. We're going to use as our guide um, as we walk through these four main scenes. There's the Jesus or Jesus feeding the five thousand plus. There's Jesus walking on the water. Jesus proclaims He is the bread of life, and then we see in the end people defect. So we're going to look at those four scenes. Using those two, ultimate revelation response as our guide, so that we can then come away with five principles for how we minister in circumstances like these. So look with me at John 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples... Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Well, Jesus said, well, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so here we have the first scene. Jesus feeds the thousands. We, we have recorded for us 5,000 men it doesn't include the women and children we could have 20,000 people being fed here and as we look at this first scene we want to look at what does Jesus reveal about himself and how do the people respond ultimately what Jesus is revealing about himself is that he is the God of creation he creates food for the people to eat and what would that take a scientific study was actually conducted by Christian scientists to determine how much power would it take to create that kind of food. And let's assume that they had a half a pound for everybody because they ate as much as they wanted and it was the best thing they had ever eaten. So they probably, we'll just say, ate a half pound. That's reasonable, I think. So if you were going to create a half pound of food for 20 to 25,000 people, how much energy would it take to turn that into mass? E equals MC squared. Energy is mass times the speed of light squared. That's Einstein's famous equation. So how much would that take? So these scientists did a scientific study. And this is what they discovered. It would take all the electrical power on Earth running at 100% output, 100% of the time, for four years. That's how much energy it would take to create that meal. Now you think that's a lot of energy. It is a lot of energy but this is nothing for Jesus. Try this. The sun, and he created the sun, without him was not anything made that was made, right? The sun consumes approximately 600 million tons of matter per second, generating enough energy in one second to supply all the U.S. current energy needs for 13 billion years in one second. That's some power. This is what's on display. Now, the disciples didn't know the science of that, and probably not many of us did either <laughs> but it's simply beyond comprehension compared to what he has the power to do in just one star the sun let alone the feeding of the thousands so how did the people respond to this just bow down in total awe and amazement for this incredible power and well, they were fascinated by the miracles that's why they were there it says repeatedly throughout the New Testament, again and again, they were drawn by the signs and the wonders. They followed him here because of the miracles. That's exactly what he says in verse 2. That large crowd, they were following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Maybe they wanted another level of life. Life is painfully mundane and going nowhere. Solomon points this out, makes this clear in Ecclesiastes 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. See, what does man gain by the toilet at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So in other words, what real impact do people really have? The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The sun comes up, sun goes down, sun comes up, sun goes down. You get up, you eat, you go to work, you go home, you eat, you go to bed. You get up, you eat, you go to work, you eat, you go home, you go to bed. Right? That's what we do. That's the mundity of life. It goes on to say the wind blows around to the north, around and around goes the wind, on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the streams flow, that's where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Now is there something that we might say, this is innovative, this is new, Well, it's already been done in ages before us. We just think it's new because we don't remember. That's the whole point Solomon's making. Life is vanity. It's vain. It's vanity of vanities. Life is mundane. And he points this out. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is about what is life like, and can we find satisfaction without God? And without God in the picture, life is inevitably mundane. And so the crowd sees him as something of a spectacle something exciting our relationships are tough our families are a mess at times disappointments abound. romans 8 reminds us we know whole creation is groaning in light of this somebody comes along then in the name of jesus offers health wealth prosperity happiness satisfaction fulfillment they're going to attract a crowd they're going to attract a crowd truth doesn't matter Only what is the here and now. The people wanted the spectacle. They wanted the the experience. They wanted the daily sustenance that would relieve them from work. They wanted to capture him. They wanted to make him king because they just wanted him to conquer and squash Roman rule and oppression. They wanted what was temporal. That's that's what they saw in Jesus. They, They weren't amazed by the awesome creative power of him as God. They did not see what he did in feeding the thousands as him being God incarnate, but rather they fed on the bread, and that's what they wanted from him. They were interested in that which was temporal, not interested in Jesus per se, but what could he do for them? that they're not interested in worshiping Jesus, being concerned with his will and desire, but they were concerned with worshiping themselves and having Jesus meet their wants and desires. Now let's continue. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Jesus walks on water. So what does Jesus reveal about himself? He both walks on water and immediately transports the boat to the shore. This continues John's theme of revealing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the creator God, and he's also the sovereign one over all of creation. He easily controls and bends the law of nature. How did the people respond? Well, the disciples who were in the boat, by implication, that would be the 12, they welcomed him. The crowds, as Jesus points out, were not seeking him for who he was, but again, for what he had done. He knows the intentions of their hearts. They lay bare before him. Jeremiah 17, 10 reminds us, the Lord searched the heart and tests the mind. Psalm 42, 21 reminds us, God knows the secrets of the heart. Merely seeking the Lord is not pleasing to him, but seeking him with a pure heart, with with the right motives to worship him and him alone for who he is, the Son of God, God incarnate. God wants our hearts. Deuteronomy 10 reminds us, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, the people sought him only because he gave them bread to eat, not because he is God. And so, here in John 6, in verse 27, we come to the crux of Jesus' proclamation. What was this pointing to? What what were the signs and the wonders putting on display that Jesus is God incarnate? What was this pointing to? Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. When Jesus speaks about not working for food, He's not forbidding or in any way demeaning hard work. But rather what he is doing is he's rebuking and exhorting them that excessive attention to labor for the body to the neglect of the soul is wrong, is not a good practice, is not ultimately healthy. Matthew 16, 26 says it like this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The people, like many today, value what is temporal far more than what is eternal and what the gospel message of jesus christ does is it helps people to understand there's more to life than what is the here and now there is eternal eternality there's eternal life and that is found in jesus alone we often underestimate the health of our soul and overestimate the health and prosperity of our bodies We do well to listen to the words of Paul when he says to Timothy, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. In response to Jesus, they said to him, then what must we do to be doing the works of God? See, again, fundamentally, man is... Because of the inherent sin within, we want to earn eternal life. It's it's, just—it's—it's part of the pride within us. We want to earn it. We want to merit it. We are proud in heart, and we we seek autonomy and self-reliance. We don't want to depend on anyone. You just think about the the young child when, for the first time, they may have learned how to tie their shoes, and then you want to come alongside. Oh, here, let me help you, because in your minds, I'll get it done a lot quicker. And then the child responds with, no, 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 no. I'll do it, right? And, and there's a sense that we're we're like that sometimes with the gospel. No, 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 I'll do it. What works must we do? And there's a sense of hubris that they're they're thinking, not only what works must we do, but we can do them. We can actually do them. And so the people thought there was something there, some work to do that they could do it on their own. About a month ago, I lost a dear friend to me um, by death, and she was a, she's just a beautiful, beautiful lady. She's a Polish lady that I had the privilege of getting to know while I was in Florida. And while we were just going and visiting some of the folks that had visited our church and sharing the gospel with them, we sat in her home, we sat at her dining room table, her family's around, a couple people from the church with me, and we just began to talk about the gospel. And I remember after about 20 or 30 minutes of conversation, she just pounds on the table. The rest of us are like this. She just pounds on the table. And I thought, uh oh, you know, we touched a nerve somewhere. And her response was this I'm not saved. I've been trying to do it in my own effort. Was good enough, but based on what you're telling me here, I'm not. And I said, would you like to be saved? Yes. <laughs> and that woman came to know Christ that day and walked and worshipped the Lord, and she's, oh, she's worshipping him perfectly today. See, Jesus uses our words as he goes on to explain the simplicity of the gospel and the work of believing. He answers them. He says, Yeah. There's the work of God. There is a work to do that you believe in him. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that he may see that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, you understand, he's already done a lot. Okay. <laughs> Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus explains that only work required was believing and that to a certain extent was the toughest work to be done. See, it's hard to believe the gospel, that we are sinners before a holy God in need of a Savior, and that Jesus Christ is that Savior whose life, death, and resurrection saves us from eternal punishment in hell and makes us alive, eternally secure with God forever. That's a hard truth. Plainly, it is hard to believe. This is the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, Uh, Chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. The prominently Jewish crowd wanted more signs from Jesus. They say that they may believe if he'll do a little bit more. They have no intention of believing. They just want more food. I want more food. They treat him like some trained monkey that's just there to serve their wants and needs. What evidence would actually convince them to believe? None. Unbelief is impossible to overcome without the grace and gift of God to do so. Let me say that one more time. Unbelief is impossible to overcome without the grace and gift of God to do so. J.C. Ryle put it this way, Above all, our Lord did mean that faith in himself is the hardest of all spiritual acts to the natural man. Did the Jews want something to do in religion? Let them know that the greatest thing they had to do was to cast aside their pride, confess their guilt and need, and humbly believe. Again, no evidence would convince them otherwise. This is clearly seen in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. That's found in Luke 19. Luke 19. If you remember that story, you have a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that they may, he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. Then Abraham said, they have Moses, they have the prophets, Let them hear them. And he reasoned. He said, Lord, no, Father Abraham, but but catch me here. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. See, that, that is the evidence beyond all evidence. Somebody comes back from the dead and tells you something, you're going to believe them. he said to him if they do not hear moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead because there's no evidence that can overcome unbelief except by the grace and gift of god And so jesus emphasizes and repeats no one comes to the father unless he draws him And so in verse 32, he says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, God was the provider of bread through Moses, and now God, is providing for them the bread of eternal life, the bread that satisfies their soul. His bread is not manna, it's Jesus Christ. And then they said to him, Sir, well, then give us this bread always. Of course they wanted this bread. They think he's referring to physical bread. To them, this would be equivalent to, you know, why many of us, if any of us, I'm not going to assume any of us do, Play the lottery. I mean, why do, why do people play the lottery? And We play the lottery, why? So I can win enough money that I don't need to work again. Right? Everything's just made for me. I mean, I remember even as a, as a young child, I used to think to myself, it was when my parents were first treating me, teaching me uh, about uh, interest. And I thought, hey, how much money would you have to put in the bank that you could live off interest for the rest of your life and not have to work? And I said, great, that's what I need to make. Right? That's the way they were thinking. They would have all they need for a lifetime. But Jesus says, verse 35, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. See, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, this is the clear proclamation of who he is and the benefit he brings to their lives. It's eternal by nature. We have here one of 23 I am statements made by Jesus, revealing himself to be the one true God incarnate. I am, Yahweh. I am the I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. This is true life and sustenance, life for the soul, for eternity, And how does one get this? To receive this, we must come and believe. In verse 35, he says, what can be so disturbing about the gospel proclamation is its simplicity and its exclusivity. That disturbs many people. Because we're going to find from here on, Jesus repeats the gospel message over and over. And guess what? It doesn't change. And it's never changed. And it will never change. And its simplicity and its exclusivity disturbs the proud-minded person. No work that anyone could boast in, and there is no other way. These two concepts drive the prideful mind crazy. I remember growing up in California, that we had two wonderful baseball parks, Candlestick Park in San Francisco and Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. You know what was so annoying about both of them? There's only one way in and one way out. Drives you crazy, right? And you just sit there and you think to yourself, there's got to be another way to get out of here. Candlestick, sure. Go in the water, swim. You know? Los Angeles, sure. Climb a mountain. There's no other way. And it drives us crazy. Oh, and it can't be that simple. No, no, no. In my prideful mind, it's got to be really complex. And we need to be able to sit around for the next 15, 20, 30, 50, 70 years discussing its complexity and still know that we don't understand it. And it disturbs people, the simplicity and exclusivity of the gospel. And Jesus grieves over unbelief. I said to you, You have seen me, and yet do not believe. Later on, we'll see Jesus even saying, Are you going to leave me also? There's a grief that's implied. Jesus will not reject. And here's the good news about the gospel. He's not going to reject one or lose one who comes and believes. This is what he means in verse 37 through 40. This is good news. See, Father gives me, all that Father gives will come to me. I will never cast out. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. I will raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Oh, the security that the gospel brings. This is the straightforward gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simple, it's plain, a comfort to those who believe and disturbing to those who do not. And so in verse 31, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? See, they're disturbed because they merely see Jesus for his humanity. He's just like us. How can he be from heaven when he was born to his father and mother? And Jesus answered him, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Repetition is the mother of learning. And the gospel message doesn't change. He repeats what he just said to make his point clear. The people are stumbling over his proclamation because there's a A work of God that is needed in their lives. In and of themselves, they will not and cannot understand what Jesus is saying. Again, Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, so in other words, by his own design and plan, the world did not come to know God through wisdom. Wisdom. In other words, God's designed it that nobody's going to get to God in and of themselves. Nobody's going to walk around and try to discover God and then all of a sudden discover Him. Because it says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Unless we're given the eyes to see and the ears to hear, we will not overcome our disbelief. Nor will the people To whom we declare and proclaim the gospel so jesus goes on it's written in the prophets they will all be taught by god everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from god he has seen the father truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life i am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, now things get real interesting for the crowd. They brought up the man in the wilderness, and Jesus shows how much better and far superior he is by way of comparison. Namely, he compares the temporal with the eternal. Again, seeking to proclaim the greater value of the soul over the body in keeping with the eating and drinking for temporal sustenance, Jesus uses this in simile fashion to reiterate that one must believe in the life and death of Jesus Christ to be saved and to have eternal life. Once again, the people show their unbelief. In verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, okay, how can this man give us his flesh to eat So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And again, in keeping with the bread metaphor and quite possibly the Passover, for that is the, the context that this is written, Jesus equates eating with believing and his flesh and blood with his life and atoning sacrifice. Fundamentally, what is it that Jesus reveals about himself? He is God, the Savior of mankind. And what was the people's response? Disbelief. And so this brings us to the last scene. This is both a a grievous and a joyful scene, it portrays the ongoing ministry of the gospel. It captures what the ministry of the gospel is. It is a grievous task. It it brings much grief in sharing the gospel. It also brings much joy. When it comes to the actual gospel message, and not about what they might get for themselves, that is temporarily satisfying people defect from Jesus. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And there's not one bit of evidence that causes that to occur. I remember when I was in college, I was given Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. right, And in that, there's all these different evidences about who Jesus is. And I remember sitting there one day going, okay, which of these evidences is what has convinced me of the gospel? And you know, I couldn't give an answer. There wasn't one evidence in there that I went, yes, that's it! Because of that! That's why I believe. No, I just can't not believe. Like, it's a work of the Holy Spirit that testifies within myself that I just cannot believe. There was a sense that just my eyes were open, my ears were open, I heard and I believed, and I can't explain why it is I do. There's, a, there's oftentimes our testimonies exist in the simplicity of John 9 and the blind man. This is all I can tell you. I was blind and now I see. That's it. That's all I know. Because it's a work of God in my life to regenerate my heart that I might come and believe what Paul would say is a foolish message that a man came from heaven and he lived a perfect life and then he died like a criminal on a cross so that if you believe in him, if you transfer your trust in yourself and actually put it on that guy, you'll be saved and have eternal life. See, listen, if it not for the work of God in your life, you would look at that message and go, that is the silliest thing I've ever heard. But because of the work of God in our life to draw us, we believe. We've believed, Peter said. We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. The ministry of the gospel is both grievous and joyful. Again, what does Jesus reveal? He's the Savior. He's the sovereign one over our believing. Believing is a gracious gift of God. It's brought about by His Holy Spirit and people's response left to themselves. They find the gospel hard to believe and subsequently reject it and defect from Christ. But those who do believe, it is the words of eternal life. And once again, Paul is helpful here in 1 Corinthians 1 Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what can we glean from Christ on how we might respond to similar ministry situations? Let me give you five things to think through in in your ministry of evangelism. Number one, grieve for those who reject the gospel. Jesus tenderly cares for people. He grieves over unbelief and defection, and so should we we are tempted to concern ourselves more with how unbelievers treat us or make our lives less than comfortable rather than grieving over their lost condition so let us grieve over the unbelief of people number two in that grief may we comfort ourselves with the sovereignty of god we saw how jesus consistently spoke of god drawing people to believe we have a responsibility to faithfully proclaim the gospel, but it is God who enables them to believe it. We are tempted to overly criticize our presentations and think, oh, if I only had? Oh, man, why didn't I think of that then? But Job 42, two says that nothing can thwart God's plan, including you. Strive to be faithful, not perfect. Skill comes with practice. Third, depend on the power of the gospel message. The message does not need your phenomenal oratory skills to be effective. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ sent me to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, catch this, less the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, I would not depend on the words, the choice words I use and reject, depending on the power of the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, many in our culture reason that since people don't believe the Bible, we shouldn't use it. And that's just plainly stupid. I I don't know any other way to evaluate that. It is the scripture that God uses to bring about belief, and you will do well and faithful to not neglect its use in the midst of an unbelieving people. We depend on the power of the message, and then fourth, do not resort to manipulative, man-made tactics. We are tempted to resort to manipulating people into believing. We we promise them their lives will be better, that they will be happier, healthier, and wealthier. I'm here to tell you, the first three years of coming to Christ would definitely stand out as the worst three years of my life. Primarily because for the first time, the Spirit was resisting my flesh. I hadn't experienced that before. What happens though when we do this is we appeal more to their flesh than we do to the soul. That's why we often hear, I tried that Jesus thing, but it didn't work for me. Well, you came at it for the wrong reason. Paul described his ministry by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Lastly, desire their salvation more than their confession. Desire their salvation more than their confession. The reason why we often resort to manipulative tactics is because we're deceptively more concerned about their confession than their salvation. I remember sharing with a friend of mine, and his response to me was this, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to believe in Jesus because then I would have to change my life. I was so tempted to say, No, you won't. No, you won't. Just confess Jesus. Jesus. Let's pray the prayer. I'm glad I can say that I didn't give in to that temptation, but I realized I was willing to sacrifice the hard truths of the gospel for a mere confession. Jesus is the only way one is saved and receives eternal life, and his gospel as he proclaims it is what needs to be confessed and believed. So let us not underestimate the power of the gospel no gibbets or manipulative tools necessary. It is the power of the gospel that saves people, not our fancy words. Generations will come and go, go, but the gospel will remain the same. Let us befriend and proclaim, depending on the power of the spirit, to do what he does to draw people and to regenerate people. And also remember this. We only have this lifetime to evangelize. There's no evangelism in heaven. Evangelism is perfect in the here and now. Worship, proclamation of the word, fellowship, perfected in heaven. But we only have the here and now to do evangelism. Now is the time. Now is the time. We want College Park to be a place that is conscious of those around us that we might pursue these come-to-Jesus moments, and the people can experience that in their own lives. And as was mentioned before, we just want to highlight a couple of opportunities, which is the Spring Hill Day Camp and the Extreme Teens. These are great events to talk to your neighbors about so that they can have their child or student attend, and we have... um, Much information for you. Go visit them. Go overwhelm them back there. Just push them back all the way against the wall, okay? But go get information that you might have an opportunity to be a blessing to those around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for the life that you give us. Uh, We're grateful that we have come to know for those of us who believe we recognize the gospel for what it is, it is indeed the power of God to save. Father, may we never underestimate the value of the soul in our own lives and in the lives of others, and may we never underestimate the power of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.